Today we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 1. We are, Lord willing, going to go all the way through Exodus 18. We're in a sermon series called Focal Point, where we're getting the big picture of Scripture. So I'm not going verse by verse. We're not going to be looking at every word of these 18 chapters. Certainly not going to be able to read it all, but I highly recommend take some time in your homes to read through these passages on your own. I've shared before, I was a lifeguard in college uh, at a camp. I, I wanted to work at this camp. Long story short, my parents moved my freshman year of, of college. And, and so the thought of going home to a place I had never lived and I didn't know anybody and spending the summer there was not very enticing. And so I decided I want to work at a, a Christian camp. Uh, this was up in Wisconsin. And they didn't have anything else available except being a lifeguard. So I worked really hard. I went to night classes to get my lifeguard certification while I was a freshman in college and was able to be a lifeguard at a camp and just had a great time. Ended up working at that camp for four summers. Um, My wife, Becky, worked there for two and just wonderful time. Wasn't a lifeguard the whole time. But you know, when you're a lifeguard, You train and train and train to save people from drowning. But the truth is, most of lifeguarding is sitting there just watching people swim. I mean, it's a weird job. You kind of hope you don't have to do your job. That's that's sort of what it's about. But there were different levels of sort of saving people who would get into trouble. In fact, I would say most of my saves as a lifeguard included or, or revolved around one particularly or one particular lifeguarding technique. This is it's a little technical, um, but, but it's basically called by the, by the two words that are involved in the technique, which are the words stand up. That was most of my lifeguarding, talking to the campers who were struggling in the water. Stand up. <laughs> Put your feet down. It's shallow. And they'd go, oh, oh, I didn't know. We had a, uh, a water slide. And so water would pour down the slide, as it does, and, and it would enter the, the lake at the bottom, and these little kids especially, they would come to the bottom, and of course, the water would push them under, and it was scary for some of them, but it was only about two and a half, three feet deep there. And so they'd be flailing around, and their head would come up, and I'd be at the bottom of the water slide, just say, put your feet down, just stand up, and nine times out of ten, they would just stand up, and, you know, the water would be up to their waist, and they'd kind of get the sheepish look on their face, <laughs> Oh, okay, I'm all right. Occasionally, occasionally there were situations in deeper water and the swimmer would go under and they would be struggling and it was very clear that swimmer, that child could not help themselves. They were going to drown. Could you imagine if as a lifeguard in that situation, I would just say, hey, put your feet down. Just try a little bit harder. Just work this out. You got this. No, if they're really drowning and they're lost and they're going under, you don't just shout helpful uh, things to them. As a lifeguard, you get in the water and you save them. The way that someone is saved must match the situation from which they need to be saved. The way that someone is saved must match the situation from which they need to be saved. A simple situation with low danger, someone maybe can just be instructed. Here's some tips. Here's some things to try. But if it is a difficult situation with a great amount of danger and the person is powerless to overcome the situation, that person must be 
rescued. They must be saved. I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Please don't raise your hands. You can answer this in your mind. Have you ever heard the idea stated that salvation in the Old Testament is different than salvation in the New Testament? That God saved people in the Old Testament by obeying the law. They just had to live and conform to a set of rules and that's how they would be saved. But now in the New Testament and New Testament times, now we're saved by Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I have. I hear it often, actually. Well-meaning people brought up in the church and they understand they're taught the Old Testament, taught the Old Testament law, which we're going to look at next week. Something to look forward to. But it's they hear these things. It's like, oh, well, they were made right with God by doing good things. We're made right with God by simply believing in Jesus. One of my main goals today is to fight against that error. God has never saved anyone by their own good works. Never. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. Living the law in the Old Testament did not save the people. Just as being a good Christian and going to church and doing good churchy things does not save us today. Because the situation from which we need to be saved and the situation from which they in the Old Testament needed to be saved was too great and is too great for us to save ourselves. God has never saved anyone through their own good works. Now, as I said, we're in this focal point series and the idea is is getting the grand picture of the overall narrative or history of Scripture. So we're kind of going book by book. We're going to start lumping some together as we get going. But I want you to know the grand overview of Scripture so that as you hear Bible stories or you read different books, you can understand how it fits into God's program that we see throughout all of Scripture. And so we have been going up to, uh, we finished Genesis last week. And at the end of Genesis, we have this small family. It's grown a little bit, but it's, it's Abraham, and then he passes on, and Isaac, and then Jacob. Now, Jacob has a whole bunch of kids, and they have all gone down to Egypt. And when we pick up the story in Exodus, 430 years have passed between the ending of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. I like putting this into perspective because I I hear numbers in history and I just can't even fathom them. I I did a little bit of research. This is roughly the same time as when the pilgrims landed uh, at Plymouth Rock to today. So so just to put it in perspective of something kind of we might be a little more familiar with, 430 years. And a lot has happened in those 430 years. At the end of the book of Exodus, the Israelites, God's people, number about 70 people. By the beginning, or I'm sorry, at the end of the book of Genesis, by the beginning of the book of Exodus, they number roughly, closely to about 2 million people. They have grown. God has used Egypt to to be sort of an incubator for his people so that they can grow. Now, that sounds wonderful. It's wonderful God's blessings, the way he works. There is a dark side, if you know the story. While they started as kind of guests, honored guests in Egypt, as time went on, a different king comes to power and he feels threatened by this growing group of foreigners living among his people. 
and he enslaves them and persecutes them. The word exodus means to leave. And the book of the exodus is all about God bringing his people, saving them out of Egypt. And as we look at this, we're going to learn a lot about how God saves us. We're going to see how he worked in the Old Testament to save his people. And we're going to see some themes that should point ahead to his son, Jesus Christ. Now, just to give some context here and an overview, I don't want to assume that everybody's familiar with these stories, but the book of Exodus begins with the calling of this man, Moses. God's going to use him to deliver his people out of Egypt. These first 18 chapters cover the 10 plagues in Egypt, God's judgment on the Egyptians. We'll look at those in a second. And then it covers the Passover, this last night before his people leave Egypt. And God rescues them and saves them. And then he takes them to the Red Sea and miraculously parts the waters and they walk through. So that's kind of the overview of the passages we're looking at today. I want to start with understanding that that if we're going to know about God's salvation, we need to know the God who is doing the saving. Who is this God? And the reason I say that is because that's his first priority in Exodus is for them to know, starting with Moses. It's like God comes and says, I want you to know who I am. I want you to be aware of the God who is saving you. So when we enter the book of Exodus, we see in chapter one, the plight of the Israelites. They are enslaved, persecuted, working hard day in and day out to do these building projects for the Egyptians, and it is not going well. They've grown in number to the point where the Pharaoh, which is kind of like the king in Egypt, he, he is so threatened by them that he has issued an order to kill every male child that is born to the Israelites. We read these things, but could you imagine the hardship of this? Living in that situation and feeling stuck, trapped, enslaved. And it seems like and would feel like such a hopeless and lost situation. And there's this question, is God going to do anything? Is he aware? Is he going to take action? And then we come to chapter 2. We're introduced to Moses. Moses is born to an Israelite, a Jewish woman. And under this, this law, this edict that goes out about killing these Jewish male children, his mother hides him in a basket on the river. This beautiful passage about how uh, he's put in the basket and then found by Pharaoh's daughter. And, and I've always wondered, you've got to be careful wondering about things we're not told in Scripture, but I've always wondered if like Moses' sister or Moses' mom thought, I know where Pharaoh's daughter goes. Maybe, just maybe, maybe she'll take him in. Because it's interesting, the the basket floats down with this little baby. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and it's kind of like, who shall care for this baby? And Moses' sister is right there, like she's just been watching and creeping along the riverbank. I will care for him, or I will find someone. Maybe we could have this other Jewish woman, who just happens to be Moses' mother, care for the baby. And so in this incredible act of God's sovereign power, Moses' mother is able to raise him. But as he grows up, he becomes the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
and he enters life in the palace among the Egyptian elite. One day, Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his fellow people. He thinks nobody can see, and he goes out and he kills the Egyptian. He finds out that word spread, and he must run. So he goes to live in a foreign land named called Midian. He gets married, has kids, becomes a shepherd. Everything seems to be going great. Peaceful life, putting down roots. And then God shows up. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. I want to begin to dig into the word of God and read these passages. Exodus chapter 3, let me read verses 1 through 10. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The burning bush. If you went to church or VBS or Sunday school, you probably heard the story of Moses and the burning bush. But I hope as adults then we can ask why. Why does God do this? Why didn't God just show up or talk to Moses? God is getting Moses' attention in a way that shows there is something out of the normal going on here. This is not a normal situation. You know, it's always interesting seeing people try to explain away miracles in the Bible because they just assume in advance miracles can't happen. Oh, there are these bushes that kind of sort of look like they are burning. Moses lived there. He was with the sheep all the time. If there were normal bushes that kind of sort of look like they were burning, he wouldn't have been like, let me go over and see what's going on because this is unusual. God is getting Moses' attention. He wants Moses to know that something different is about to happen. And he tells Moses, take off your sandals. He says, Moses, there's something different going on here. You are meeting with someone that you need to show respect to. Take off your sandals. This place is holy. It's set apart for a purpose. And I love that God says, I am aware that my people are struggling. I'm aware. I preached at a graveside funeral yesterday morning. And one of the stories I love to share at a funeral is is the story of Jesus going to the funeral of Lazarus. 
And I just love the part where Jesus shows up and he sees their hurt and their pain. And the Bible says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. All throughout scripture, we get a picture of an involved God who is clearly aware of everything that is going on. And he is not indifferent or unfeeling. Here in Exodus, the Lord knows that his people are struggling. He knows that they're hurting. He is aware and he's going to do something about it. He's going to rescue them and he's going to use Moses to do it. And Moses has that feeling like, uh, what? Who? Me? Not me. And for the rest of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, Moses and God go back and forth with Moses kind of saying, I can't do it because of this. Oh, my schedule's really busy. Or I'm just, I'm not the guy. And God keeps saying, nope, you are the guy. But then there comes this question that Moses has in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? It's like he's saying, who are you? How are my people back in Egypt, how are they going to know that I actually spoke to you and you spoke to me? God, I, I need a name here to tell them. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God has many titles, names throughout scripture. He's referred to in different ways. There are names such as the God who is all powerful, the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who provides. They all talk about something that God does. This name that, that God says, this is my most personal, intimate name. This name is about who God is. You may have heard this word before. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Throughout history, occasionally people have translated it Jehovah. Um, they're really the same word. Yahweh is probably a more accurate translation. But the truth is we struggle to translate that word because we don't know how they pronounced it because the Jewish people quit saying it out loud. They were so afraid of dishonoring the name of God and using it in vain that they quit saying his name. And so they would, they would put another name of God in its place and the pronunciation of this name got kind of lost over the years. Yahweh. This name is so special, and it means exactly what it says here. I am. Now, imagine going up to somebody and trying to explain who you are. You might say, well, I'm from Rochester, New York. Well, I work at such and such a place. I'm married to so-and-so. We start describing our relationships around us as a way for people to understand who we are. This was really big in the Jewish community, too. Who are you? Well, I am the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. This is who I am. I depend on my identity, or rather my identity depends on my relationships. But understand what God is saying here. I am who I am. God's name, the essence of who he is, is God saying to Moses, I simply am. I depend on no one. 
I am not defined by anyone. I am who I am. He is the God who is. All of the rest of what happens in the book of Exodus, all of God saving his people, drawing them into a relationship with him, all of this depends on God's powerful authority to be simply who he is. And God wants them to know. He wants them to know that he is the one who is saving them. He is the one who gets all the credit. Often in scripture, God tells his people that he's doing certain things so that they can know him better. God wants us to know who he is. God doesn't want us to just stay far off and kind of learn a few tidbits about him and say, I'm good. He wants us to know who he is. Over and over again, it says that you may know, that you may know me. Along with this is God wants us to know that he is the one who saves us. God gets the credit for our salvation. Not us. We don't look at ourselves and say, I'm so great and I fixed myself up and I cleaned myself off and now I'm acceptable to God. Praise me. God gets all the credit for our salvation because our situation is completely helpless and hopeless. God's going to rescue his people out of Egypt. But the way that he does it is to leave absolutely no doubt in their minds, or in the minds of anyone who sees it. He is the one who saves them. The next thing we see is that God is greater than this situation. God is greater. In Exodus chapters 7 through 11, there is a battle that takes place. It is not a battle fought on a battlefield with armies. It is a battle over who is greatest in the world. Who is the most powerful? On one side, representing the power and might of humanity and all that humanity might be tempted to believe in other than God, we have Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Powerful world leader. In fact, we talk about kind of nations in the world that are superpowers today. Egypt was a superpower at this time in history. He had a right to think kind of highly of himself. In fact, he was considered a god to his people. They worshipped him as a god. So we have Pharaoh on one side, and on the other side we have Yahweh. I am who I am. And God, Yahweh, is telling Pharaoh to let his people leave Egypt. This God who has promised his people protection, who has promised them a future, has called them and promised them to have a land that is all their own, and yet his people are enslaved in a foreign land and they are suffering. Here's the battle lines. Pharaoh on one side, God on the other. You might be familiar with this part of Exodus, the ten plagues. It's a difficult section. Throughout a series of back and forth conversations between God and Pharaoh, God tells Pharaoh to let his people leave and Pharaoh refuses over and over again. Each time God says, let my people go or here's what's going to happen. Something really bad is going to happen. And over and over again, Pharaoh refuses. And each time there is a plague upon the people of Egypt. The first is that the river Nile is turned to blood. 
And the second frogs come out in droves out of the Nile, covering the land. And the third gnats swarm all over the land, over the people and the animals. And the fourth flies swarm all over the land. And this is the first time that the plague is only on the people of Egypt and not on God's people. And the next, the livestock die. Then in the next, boils cover the people's bodies as they break out in sores. Hail destroys their crops. Locusts swarm over the land and eat whatever survived the hail. Darkness spreads over the land. And then finally, after numerous times of God saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying no, or sometimes saying yes, and then God relents and and stops the punishment. And then Pharaoh says no again, over and over again. God's final warning is, let my people go. I will go throughout Egypt and I will take the life of every firstborn son. Now, a few important things to remember because this is hard. We read things like this and go, I, I, I can't believe in a God like that. We want a God who saves, but we don't want a God who judges. But the Bible shows that he is both. And you can't have one without the other. A few important things to remember is that God warned them very clearly every single time. This is not a capricious God just standing up in heaven and zapping with his lightning bolts and seeing where they fall and going, "Mm, tough to be you. This is a God who says, I'm warning you. Obey me. Give in. Don't just follow your own way. These are not just random, mean acts of God. The other thing that's interesting is that each of these ten plagues targets one or multiple of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. Every single plague struck at the heart of something they trusted in to keep them safe and secure. The Egyptians believed that their gods and their goddesses would protect them, and God, Yahweh, systematically proves he is greater than everything they trust in. Look at Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Why is God doing this? Because he wants them to understand that he is greater than everything else they're they're trusting in. He wants them to understand that he is God and they are not. He is greater They worshiped the Nile as a goddess. They had a god or a goddess of frogs. They had a goddess of flies, of livestock. They had a god who supposedly protected their health, a goddess of the skies, a god who gave the crops, and a god of storms. They worshiped as a god the sun. And finally, they believed that Pharaoh himself was God, making his son, guess what? The son of God. And God says, you're trusting the wrong. You're grasping onto things that cannot save you. And he wants them to know that he is God. And all these other things are not. 
I'm not sure reading these things we can understand the impact this would have had on the Egyptian society. And so I tried to come up with kind of some modern day equivalents. Imagine if in a few days the economy collapsed. The food supply was completely shut off. The electric grid crashed. The internet shut down. Our political system fell apart. The cell phone network completely stopped. And disease spreads out all around the world. Imagine all of that happening all at once. And I know some of you are going to go, oh, well, we're already there and it's already happening. No, nothing like that. Oh, we've had little tastes, little tastes of difficulty, COVID, political discourse and strife. We've had tastes of difficulty, yes, but not to this extreme. This would cripple us, cripple us. God systematically unravels everything they trust in, everything they think will protect them, proving that he alone is God and he is greater than anything else. God is greater than anything we might be tempted to trust in. And there are times we grab hold of things with a closed fist and we say, I'm, I'm holding on to this. This is protecting me. This is helping me. Sometimes in his mercy, God has to come along in one finger at a time, open our hands because he knows the thing we're trusting in will not protect us. He and he alone is greater and can save. So how? How does God save his people? And why? What is his grand purpose here? First of all, God saves through his power. If you know a little bit about the story of scripture, we've got the exodus here. God saves his people out of Egypt. He's going to take them into the desert and there he will give them his law, his list of rules. We must not mix up that order. Could you imagine God coming to his people enslaved in Egypt and saying, well, I've got a little contract for you to sign and here's the rules you need to agree to. And if you do all these things, then maybe I'll help you get out of Egypt. That's not what he did. He comes to them and says, you are lost. You are helpless. You are hopeless. I will save you. I will rescue you. God's salvation always precedes and enables our obedience. Always. We don't obey our way into heaven and into salvation. God never just tells his people to put their feet down and stand up and work a little harder. He rescues his people. He takes the initiative. He is the one who saves because we can never save ourselves. So God saves through his own power. The second thing we see in the Exodus is that God saves by providing someone to die or something to die in their place. A substitutionary sacrifice. On the night that they are to leave Egypt, the night that God brings the final judgment upon the Egyptians, where he's going to go throughout the land and take the life of every firstborn male of every household, God gives instructions to his people. He tells them to take a lamb and kill it and spread the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their house. And then when God goes throughout Egypt to bring judgment, he will pass over, pass over, show mercy and grace to anyone who has the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Why? 
Why didn't he just look at them and say, well, you're my people and, and you're just so great, so I'll just spare you. Because the truth is, when God brings judgment, we all, we all deserve it. But God provides a way for his people to be saved. He provides a way for something else to die in their place, a lamb. And for the blood of that lamb to cover them, to protect them. And then he gives them instructions for a meal, a meal that would become known throughout the ages as the Passover celebration, so that every year God's people would say, remember what God did. Teach your children. Remind them. Why? Why does God save this way? Because our need is so great. We need God to save us. Because our guilt is so great. We need God to provide someone to take the punishment for us. On that day, God leads his people out of Egypt. And you would think that would be like, this is great. They're free. They're out. And he leads them right to the shore of the Red Sea where they are stuck. We're not going to read the passage, but the language is so clear. God specifically tells them to go to a place where they are going to be put into danger from Pharaoh's armies coming after them. Why? Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his armies and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God wants to be sure that everybody who hears this story knows who he is and what he is capable of. And then in Exodus 14, 31, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Why does God take his people to an impossible situation and then miraculously rescue them? Because he is teaching them and teaching us only he can do it. God parts the water. His people walk through. The Egyptian army is covered in water and drowns. And it really, you know, throughout the ages, people have tried to explain this away. Oh, it's just a sea of reed. It was just a little bit high. I mean, it's a miracle either way. If it's a whole bunch of water, it's a miracle that the Israelites went through. If it's a whole little bunch of water, it's a miracle that the Egyptian army was overcome by it. You really can't get around the fact that it's a miracle. Plus, I've been to marshes. I remember going out fishing with my uncle in Lake Okeechobee in, in Florida. It's a giant marsh. You're not going to bring two million people and all of their supplies and all of their belongings through it. I don't care if it's a foot of water or ten feet of water. You're not going to do it. And the Bible says they walk through on dry land. It's a miracle. Because God miraculously saves his people. And we need God to miraculously save us because we can't do it ourselves. One day, Jesus Christ the true Son of God, would come. And one day someone would see him and cry out these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where did they get that from? Exodus. And the Lamb that was killed as a substitution for someone else. 
Later, before he dies on the cross, Jesus eats a meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And he takes these elements of the meal that pointed back to that night when God rescued the Israelites, and he takes all of the elements of that meal and he points them to himself and he says, I am now the way that God saves. It is my blood that will be shed for you. It is my body that will be broken for you. The Old Testament sets all of this up, that God saves people by God's power, God's mercy, and God's grace. It's all over the Exodus, and it's all over the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by God's power, mercy, and grace, and through the substitute that God provides. Never does God just tell us to work harder to save ourselves. And maybe you're here today and that's for some reason, somehow that's the message you've heard over the years. I'm not good enough for God. I've got to be good enough for God. I've got to clean up my life. That's not how God works. And no matter how hard you try, even if you were way better at it than anybody else in this room, you could never do it. The water is too deep. Your feet won't reach. You don't need to just stand up. You need to be saved. And in the desperation of our lives and our history, God's Son entered the situation and saved us. Because our God is powerful and He is mighty to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the wisdom of the Old Testament, as hard as some of these passages are. I thank you that you show us more about who you are. And God, I pray that you would help us. So often our picture of you is just way too small. And we've latched on to some little aspect of of who you are that, that we like and we can comprehend and we just ignore the rest. But God, you are God and we are not. And you have given us all of your word to give us a bigger picture of who you are and what you're doing. And the picture I see throughout Scripture is that you are mighty to save. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that's just feeling stuck and lost and hopeless, may they hear the message of grace. Your Son has been sent as a rescue for them. They don't need to work harder. They need to trust in the God who is mighty to save them. And your son who came to die in their place to pay the price for their sins. And Father, I pray as as your people then, let us be careful what we point to in our lives that we are trusting in. May the people that look at us see you at work. May they give you the glory because we are giving you the glory. We are proclaiming through every fiber of our being and every action and motivation, God saved me because I could never have done it myself. And then may we reach out with the gospel to proclaim that you can save them as well. Thank you, Father, for being a God who is mighty, mighty to save. In your name we pray. Amen.